And then we see in verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Now I like the fact here that it doesn't say a great many were added to the church so they had to add new pews in the back. It doesn't say that. It says they were added to the Lord. Remember Paul would later say, some will say, I am of Paul or I am of Apollos. But that's not what's important. The important thing is, are you of Christ? And then the other thing I want to mention here is, it says that the hand of the Lord was with them. My friends, Jesus said to his disciples in his final conversation with them before he went to the cross, without me, you can do nothing. All right, well, if you could turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11, we will begin to read in verse 18. We are continuing on. Peter has just told the his Jewish brethren in Jerusalem that uh, the, let me get this on. Peter has just told his brethren in Jerusalem that the uh, gospel has gone to Cornelius, that Cornelius and his household believed God and the Holy Spirit came upon them. Thus, as God, thus as God seal that they were a part of the family of God. Remember we read in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise at the time that we are converted. And at the time of at, in the, at these times in Acts, the Holy Spirit came down in a very powerful and dramatic way to show that this expansion of the church was something that God approved of. So today we're going to look at the continued growth of the church. And when you look at the disciples in the Gospels, you might wonder how the church could ever grow because what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus said, you will all forsake me tonight. He said it, it was because Scripture had to be fulfilled. I will smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and indeed they all scatter. So, the first point on this message of the church expand is evangelism slowly grows among the Jews. Let's look at uh, Acts eleven eighteen and 19. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about, that arose about 
Stephen travailed as far as Phineas and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. So we have a situation where these believers, they acknowledge that Cornelius has been endued by the Spirit of God and that his family has been brought into fellowship with the Lord Jesus, but they're still hesitant to share the gospel with the Gentiles. They still feel... Um, they, they feel close to God and they're not sure about the Gentiles being a part of that. But remember in, in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, God says to the people of Israel, you are my chosen people, but it's not because of your greatness. It's not because of who you are as people, it's because I have chosen that upon you I will extend my mercy. And if we look back in Genesis to Abraham, he receives this promise that in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. So it was always God's plan to bring the Gentiles into this relationship, to graft them in to the tree um, that is God's people. And so, this is the beginning of this process. Again, they're still getting used to the fact that uh, Peter went to the Gentiles, and the ones that Peter went to received the word. I, I think, too, of the, the fact that Jesus said, to cast not your pearls before swine. So when Peter was going to these Gentiles, he wasn't going to these random Gentiles and saying, accept the word of the Lord. He had to be given a specific message that Cornelius and his family wanted to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even after he goes to Cornelius, he says to Cornelius, why did you send for me? And Cornelius gives the testimony of how he was praying and the angel came to him and said, Cornelius, your good deeds and your alms have come up before God and send and find Simon Peter in the house of Simon the Tanner and he will show you the way to eternal life. God is very specific, very detailed on this point. Let's look very quickly at a couple passages. First of all, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7. And secondly, Acts 1, 8. So if, if a gentleman gets to uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7, if you could read it for us. So this is a situation where, where we are seeing that God is doing the work. 
in Romans chapter 1, or in the early part of Romans, it's made clear that no man seeks after God. And in Jeremiah, we read why. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But God said, as we, as we read earlier and referred to earlier, on this rock, the declaration of Peter that you are the Son of God, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Remember, as we look at the things that God says, he always speaks in the definitive. He doesn't waver. He doesn't stutter. He says, this will happen. And so this is what we are seeing unfold here in Acts chapter 11. So could somebody read Acts 1.8? But you shall receive power from the Holy Spirit as come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem in all Judea, and in Samaria, and the end of the earth. And so we're seeing the gradual expansion of the church of God. We started with the disciples in the upper room. They come out of the upper room, and Peter uh, preaches the sermon on Pentecost, and every person from the different Areas of the earth who came to Jerusalem for the Passover or for the day of Pentecost. Here's Peter in their own language. And Peter says, these men are not drunk as you suppose. And then he outlines the the prophecy in Joel. Where he says that God's spirit will fall upon you and your old men will see visions and your young men will dream dreams and he gives the gospel of Jesus Christ and one important thing about when you see the gospel presented in the Bible in the word of God you'll notice that there is no altar call there is no sinner's prayer we can debate if you want, whether those things have their place. But in these situations in the book of Acts where the gospel is presented, the Holy Spirit of God works on the people to whom it is being presented to the point where they say, of their own volition, through the Spirit of God, what must I do? See, when Peter went to Cornelius, he went to a man who wanted and desired eternal life. And he was in a place in his life where he was willing to say, what must I do? What must I do to have eternal life? When Peter preached that sermon on the day of Pentecost, the people were cut to the heart and they said, what must I do to get eternal life? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. And so now we have this situation. Moving on to our next point. Well, first of all, I have a little story here to share with you. Some years ago, a commuter on the Long Island Railroad was known to every regular patron 
on the five o'clock local. He was a well-dressed, soft-spoken young man who lived at Jamaica. Every evening after the train left the subway, he would rise and go in front of the car. As he walked back, he would speak to every passenger and say, saying, Excuse me, but if any of your family or friends are blind, tell them to consult Dr. Garl. He restored my sight. That is evangelism. He did not argue, he testified. Courteously, courageously, confidently, he commended to each and all the one who had opened his eyes. He had good news, and he told it, if we who are redeemed would do likewise. So, do you have good news? Has God redeemed you? Has God saved you? Then tell the good news. Uh, that was such a good reminder to me too because sometimes we as humans kind of read that as debate with people. But this story makes the point the man didn't debate with people. He didn't argue with them. He simply said, this is the one who restored my sight. Remember the man born blind when Jesus restored his sight and they were asking him all these questions? He said, I don't know all the answers to your questions. But this one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. And then he said, no one can do these things except the Spirit of God be with him. And guess what happened to him? He was cast out of the synagogue. The world hates Jesus Christ. The world hates the truth. The world wants to suppress the truth. Okay, so our next point. Evangelism expands to the Gentiles at Antioch. Acts 11, 20, and 21 say, And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come upon Antioch, spoke unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Now there's a couple significant things I want to point out about these two verses. First of all, they went to Antioch and they preached to the Grecians the Lord Jesus. We are told in Colossians chapter 2 that Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That it's all about Jesus. Paul said that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He said, I preach nothing but Christ crucified. So, Jesus was what mattered. And then we see in verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Now, I like the fact here that it doesn't say 
A great many were added to the church, so they had to add new pews in the back. It doesn't say that. It says they were added to the Lord. Remember, Paul would later say, some will say, I am of Paul or I am of Apollos. But that's not what's important. The important thing is, are you of Christ? And then the other thing I want to mention here is, it says that the hand of the Lord was with them. My friends, Jesus said to his disciples in his final conversation with them before he went to the cross, without me, you can do nothing. There's a lot of Christianity today that is without the Spirit of God. having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. The hand of the Lord was with them. Where else do we read that? In the book of Genesis, in the story of Joseph, we read chapter after chapter, and God was with them. That should be something that we should all aspire to. As the church of God, that when God calls us home, or if God calls us to be physically persecuted specifically for his name at some point in our life, that it would still be in such a way that the people that we are with, that are persecuting us, would be able to see unequivocally that God is with us. Think of the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians. He ends Philippians by saying, The saints of Caesar's household greet you. Why do you think there were saints in Caesar's household? Because every single time Paul was chained to somebody in that jail in Rome, he was preaching the cross. Because that is what Paul lived for. He said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. He loved me and gave himself for me. So, if we want to be successful in ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ, God must be with us. Without me, you can do nothing. But he said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Which means that if God gives you a, a purpose and a job to do, then you can do it in the power of his Son, the Lord Jesus. Someone could look up Galatians three twenty-four to 29. Galatians three twenty four to twenty nine. As for the law, with our tutor, we pronounce to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God 
U.S. to baptize into Christ and put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know, people talk today in our culture a lot about discrimination. Whether it be racial discrimination or gender discrimination or any number of, of social classes discrimination. But Paul dispels that right here now. Because he said you're all one. There's no male or female. There's no Jew or Greek. We're all one in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that if we, as a Christian church, would purpose to live out the truth of Galatians 3, 24-29, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's when we become world changers for the Lord. The book of Acts says that the disciples turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Did they do it because they were such a great intellect? No. They were, they were fishermen, tax collectors, in many ways the cast-offs of society. They did it because they had been with Jesus. They did it because they were indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, and God plus any one of us is a majority. Because God's will will be done. God's not surprised by anything that's going on in the world today. He's not taken aback. He's not panicked. He's still sitting on his throne. Still working his will. Still moving the hearts of mankind. And he calls us to be salt and light in this world in which we find ourselves. It must have been really difficult for these Jewish believers to accept the changes that God was making. Perhaps some of us have had people in our lives where we just didn't think there was any way God would ever work in their lives. We shortchanged God. But if God can change Saul of Tarsus into Paul the Apostle, someone who persecuted the church of God, but put him in the but God put him in the ministry anyway then he can change anyone. I'd urge you to pray for your leaders, for the president, because God is still in the business of making a difference in the lives of people. And the Bible says the, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And I believe that. 
my eternal destiny relies on that truth because I cried out to God as a young boy. And he saved me. And he, as with Paul, decided to put me into ministry. And I'm so grateful for it, even though I resisted. Can I just tell you something? When you resist God, He's going to win anyway. So just stop. Moses knows this. Moses argued with God for a chapter and a half in our Bible about how he couldn't go to free the children of Israel from the Egyptians. He's like, send whoever you want to send, just, just not me, Lord. And God said, no, Moses. Go your way and I will tell you what to say. You know, he had a lot of strife with his brother Aaron. Well, not a lot of strife, but a couple times where he had strife with his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam. I wonder sometimes if he would have avoided that strife if he had listened to God and said, yes, God, I will go. But see, as God was going through this with Moses, he then said, well, I'm sending your brother Aaron to you and he will be a prophet to you and you will be to him as God. And they worked together to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. I don't know what God's ultimate plan was. I don't know how that played in. But I just know that following God and doing what he says leads us to peace that passes all understanding, even in times of uncertainty. The very best place to be is in the center of the will of God. Think about that also in the story of Abraham, because God told Abram, Get thee out of thy homeland and from thy kindred, and go on to a place in which I will show you. And guess what? He brought Lot with him. And that caused strife. It caused division. It caused difficulty. And God said, I'm going to bring a, a child from your loins and he's going to be great and you're going to be a great nation. And he took Hagar as his wife and begot Ishmael. And God said, Ishmael's not the one. Sarah will have a baby. And he will be We all need to be careful that we don't run ahead of God. I, I know what it's like to try to get ahead of God. It doesn't go well. Like I said, I know what it's like to resist God, but God knows what he's doing. So when God calls you to do something, save your breath and do it. Because his plans are greater than ours could ever be even comprehended to be. A Presbyterian youth from New Orleans was a naval wireless operator during the war. Early one morning after a night on duty, he snatched a few moments for his quiet hour when no message was going over and he was reading the 23rd Psalm. Suddenly the thought came to him to send the psalm out over the water and see if a ship would take it up. 
He did, and as he sent the last word, sixteen ships answered a wireless, Amen. Billy Graham once said, when a man shows courage, the spines around him are stiffened. We see that in the book of Daniel. When Daniel said, I'm purposing in my heart that I will not eat the king's food, his friends Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego followed him. When Daniel said to his friends Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, let's pray so we can give the king an answer to his dream, they prayed with him. And so, when their time came, at the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, They said, O king, live forever, but we will not bow down to the golden statue that you have set up. We know that our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will not do this. They had courage because they had seen the example of Daniel and they had stuck together as friends and as brothers who loved the Lord. And I believe that they saw the pre-incarnate Christ. Because when Nebuchadnezzar threw them into the furnace, there were three of them. But then Nebuchadnezzar looks again. And he said, didn't we throw three in? And he said, but there's a fourth, and, his, and he looks like the Son of God. And then when Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were called forth from the fiery furnace, their hair was not singed, their clothes were not burned up. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Truly, there is a God in Israel, and anyone who does not worship Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego's God will be destroyed. Now this is a very reactionary person, that probably wasn't the best reaction, but the point being that the spirit, that the power of God was seen. And when we unify, when we work together, God is glorified. Our third point is Barnabas examines and encourages the church at Antioch. Acts 11, 22, and 24. It's 24. The first time we meet Barnabas, we hear about his nickname as the son of consolation or the son, the son of encouragement. And he sold land and he gave the money to the church and he inspired others to do likewise. He was an, he was an encourager. And then we see him come to the Apostle Paul's aid when Paul has this change of heart and life. And they don't want to let Paul into the church. And he says, but Paul preached Christ faithfully. He really knows the Lord. He gave him what we sometimes refer to today as the right hand of fellowship. So who better to go and encourage these new believers than 
Barnabas. Acts 11.22 The tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad, and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. So Barnabas comes, and he saw the grace of God in their lives, and instead of being jealous and saying, I thought this was just for us as Jews, he rejoices and is glad. And he exhorted them with purpose of heart that they would cleave to the Lord. I, I don't think that we hear that exhortation enough. That we would cleave to the Lord. The psalmist said, I desire your word, Lord, more than my necessary food. Jesus said, I have meat that you know not of. He also said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then it says, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. Again, these are things that we would want to be known for. That we are full of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost dwells in every believer, but we can quench the Spirit by the way that we live, by decisions that we make. And because he was full of the Holy Ghost, he was full of faith. And again, much people were added unto the Lord. It's not talking about the size of the church. It's not talking about a 30,000 seat auditorium and a new gymnasium and saying people are added to the Lord. What a blessing it is to have Barnabases in our life. Think of how great Paul became, the great leader that Paul became in the early church. But where would he have been without Barnabas? Who was willing to come alongside him and bring him into the church. And it it was pointed out in a sermon I listened to this week that there are some passages where it talks about Barnabas and Paul, but eventually it talks about Paul and Barnabas. Kind of alluding to the fact that not only was Barnabas willing to come alongside Paul and bring him into the church, but he was willing to drop off the background and realize how Paul 
was being used by the Lord. If we could look at 2 Timothy 1, 4, and 5. 2 Timothy 1, 4, and 5. 2 Timothy 1, 4, and 5, correct? Yes. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which you lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. So Paul was encouraged by Barnabas. And then he takes this role of encourager and exhorter in the life of Timothy, who he calls his dear son in the faith. And he says, I know that you have a gift that God has given you. And he says, fan the flames of it. Keep using it. I know you're a man of deep faith. Keep using the gifts that God has given you. And that is so important for us as a church to be able to say that to one another. That is why the writer of Hebrews said that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but that we should meet together and exhort one another to good works and even more so as what? As we see the day approaching. So as the world gets darker, as things get crazier out there, we need to shine brighter. Not shut down, not hold on to the bottom of our seat and close our eyes and just pray for the rapture, but to shine brighter until the perfect day. Christians are urged to provoke one another unto good works. The word provoke means to arouse, incite, hearten. It is, it, is it not a most worthy ambition and privilege to awaken and inspire others to live righteously and godly in this present world? Few are aware of how much failure is due simply to the lack of incentive and courage or the loss of spirit. When the heart goes out of a person... There is no longer any vision to quicken, to cheer, to lead. So it is, Christian, to hearten and provoke others unto love and good works. Singing to the merry ring of his trowel, a bricklayer aroused Carlisle from the stupor of dependence, despondency and provoked him to rewrite the second volume of his French Revolution which had been destroyed in the manuscript. A line quoted from the New Testament and a pat on the head had changed the stupid, shy lad Walter Scott and kindled in his heart a quenchless flame. A kiss from his mother at the psychological moment made Benjamin West a painter. Thus, a seasonable word, a mother's prayer, a friendly grasp of the hand, the memory of a face, often turn out to be provoking, destiny-making acts. So important. For parents to realize the influence they can have on their children. And for all of us to realize 
the influence that we can have in whatever sphere of influence we are given. There's an old children's song that simply says, Brighten the corner where you are. Then our final point for today, Barnabas seeks Saul, who would later be named Paul, to assist him in the work of the Lord. Remember, Paul had had fled Jerusalem because of persecution. I think we can infer from this timeline that he's had his three years in the desert. And here's what it says in Acts 11, 25 and 26. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. I remember hearing something way back in high school that if they started arresting Christians around you, would there be enough evidence to convict you of that crime? That spoke to me even then, and I think about it often. In our popular culture today, it is it is cool or acceptable or whatever positive verb you want to throw out there to be called a Christian. Most people, when they are running for political office here in the United States of America, they try to put forth at least some degree of having a Christian faith because they know that we were established as a Judeo-Christian nation. But there's only one thing that makes you truly a Christian. And that's that you have bowed your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledged Him as the Lord of your life. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved except for the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything else is window dressing. Everything else is just having a form of godliness, denying the power. As I've said many times before, you can know the words of this book, but until you meet the word made flesh, you will not have a change in your life. But the good news is this. Paul said, if any man be in Christ, He is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so, I rejoice in that today as we embark upon this new year not knowing what is going to happen. We can know this, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever.
Can we look at Acts 9, 29, and 30? Acts 9, 29, and 30. If somebody gets there, if they can read it for us, that would be... So this is just this is just giving us um, the background of what we just read about uh, Barnabas seeking Saul in Tarsus because he was sent away from Jerusalem because he was being persecuted, and so Barnabas goes to fetch him, and they begin a year of ministry in Antioch, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. My question to you, as well as to me, I'm pointing at myself too. Christian means Christ-like one, or a little Christ. So, if people were going to convict you, or people were starting to convict people here in the U.S. of being Christians and how bad that was, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's something that we should all consider. And I think we should also consider within the church how we can be an encouragement to one another. Remember we said Barnabas was an encourager and he brought Paul to Antioch to do and partner with him in the work of the Lord. Remember in Ecclesiastes, I think it says, two are better than one, and a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Now we often refer to that as a wedding passage, and it's very applicable there, but I think it's applicable in other facets of the body of Christ as well. We need to be ready and willing to encourage the believers to strengthen the feeble knees. And I want to close with this story about President Thomas Jefferson I thought was applicable. It says, during his, la- during his days as president, Thomas Jefferson and a group of companions were traveling across the country on horseback. They came to a river which had left its bank- banks because of a recent downpour. The swollen river had washed the bridge away. Each rider... Ryder was forced to ford the river on horseback, fighting for his life against the rapid currents. The very real possibility of death threatened each rider, which caused a traveler who was not part of the group to step aside and watch. After several had plunged in and made it to the other side, the stranger asked President Jefferson if he would ferry him across the river. The president agreed without hesitation. The man climbed down, and shortly thereafter, the two of them made it to safety 
made it safely to the other side. As the stranger slid off the back of the saddle onto dry ground, one of the group asked him, Tell me, why did you select the president to ask this favor of? The man was shocked, admitting he had no idea it was the president who had helped him. All I know, he said, all I know, he said, is that on some of your faces was written the answer no, and on some of them was the answer yes. His was a yes face. I think that's a challenge to all of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to have a yes face. To be praying and looking for ways that we can help people in our community. And when they ask, why did you help me today? We can say, because the Lord Jesus Christ reached down and helped me one day. And I know he can help you too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage of Acts chapter 11 and how we have been learning about the growth of the church. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We thank you how we've seen the Jews embrace the gospel and how we've seen it spread to the Gentiles. And as a Gentile myself, I'm thankful for the crumbs that have fallen from the master's table and for being included in the family of God. Lord, I pray that we would Go throughout this week looking for ways to help others and that we would be approachable and that we would have yes faces toward the things that you have for us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.